to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. We have discussed the basic income from a number of angles on this podcast, but one that we haven't delved into as much is the angle of racial justice. Yeah, that's something that often comes up when people talk about what are the potential benefits of basic income, that some of the historical inequities that exist in our system today, if we actually had a universal income floor or maybe even something slightly beyond that, that could actually help to really address some of those issues. And so here to help us delve into that is this week's guest, Dorian Warren. He's the president of the Center for Community Change Action, a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and co-chair of the Economic Security Project. Welcome, Dorian. Thank you, Jim and Owen. It's great to be here. So to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about what originally got you interested in, in universal basic income? Well, honestly, and many people don't know this, so it's on your podcast first that I think folks are hearing about this for the first time. I came across this idea in the late 90s from um, the philosopher uh, Philip Van Paris, actually, as well as um, a book by uh, Bruce Ackerman and Anne Allstott on the stakeholder society. And so I was bouncing these ideas around in my head in terms of what would a just society look like in terms of economic justice, and just kind of came upon the idea and read quite a bit on it and the notion of the link of UBI to freedom from domination and freedom from insecurity. And it just resonated with me. And then later on, when I was reading um, about Black political thought and history, I came to the idea through both the Black Panther Party and Martin Luther King Jr., who wrote about this, as you guys know, in his last book uh, before he was assassinated in 1968. So it, it's been bouncing in my head for almost 20 years, to be honest. So once you tie those two threads together, can you share your perspective on how basic income ties into racial justice? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the Black Panther Party platform from, I think it's roughly October 1966, the 10-point platform, number two on that platform was a notion around guaranteed jobs and or income. And it's um, something that people like to read over and just focus on the guarantee, guaranteed jobs part, which I'm all about. Hey, if we can guarantee jobs for every single person, that's great. But since we haven't been able to, to advance full employment, especially for black Americans, then I'm all about guaranteed income at the same time. And so from a racial justice standpoint, you don't have to look to the future or to future trends in terms of automation, technology, robots, to understand that there's a huge, huge labor market problem for black Americans. Since the 70s, black unemployment has been twice that of white unemployment rates. And so today, it would be a huge, huge breakthrough and benefit in terms of um, black employment prospects, in terms of the poverty rate in black communities, two out of three black children are born under the poverty line. If we had a basic income today, we could actually eliminate many racial disparities as, as they exist right now. The idea that a basic income would disproportionately benefit black Americans says a lot about our current social programs today. Could you kind of uh, untangle that for us? You know, we have all these social programs that are supposedly universal. Uh, why would a universal basic income actually provide more universal benefits? So there, there, there are a few ways to unpack this question. So one, if we just stay on the employment angle of this for a minute, what we know in the last 30 years is the increase in mass incarceration 
and a criminal justice system that preys on especially poor and working class black people. So whether it's um, especially in the 80s and 90s, black Americans being locked up for nonviolent drug crimes, um, which we're actually seeing hitting white communities and especially white rural communities now in terms of a different kind of drug epidemic of heroin, of opioids, of meth. In the 80s, for black Americans, it was crack, cocaine. Um, when in urban areas, deindustrialization hit and there was mass unemployment for black communities. And so the way in which people survived was to sell drugs, right? Well, they got locked up for it and there are people still in jail now and in prisons now serving time for that. What we also know is once people get out, they still have a criminal record and it's a huge barrier to employment. So for those folks that say, oh, no UBI, we just gotta find people's jobs, it's not working, right, for black people, and it hasn't worked for a very, very long time. So the employment prospects are much narrower for black Americans, and especially for black men. So that's one just direct way in which a basic income would help, especially um, black Americans who have to do illicit activities, right, to survive if they can't break into the formal job market. Secondly, we know the existing social safety net, whether it's welfare, food stamps, um, the earned income tax credit. Well, for the earned income tax credit, you have to work, right? It's that earned income tax credit. So if you have a criminal record, you can't find a job, then how are you going to even access the earned income tax credit? So that's not working for too many black Americans. Food stamps, it's not for all Americans, it's not adequate enough. Um, and in fact, in my role as the president of the Center for Community Change Action, I'm leading a campaign to defend what's left of food stamps, of Medicaid, and of a very um, stingy social safety net that we have in this country. So actually for all Americans, it's stingy. For black Americans in particular, it's not enough to lift people above the poverty line. So from both of those directions, in terms of employment prospects, and then the existing social safety net, it is just not enough. And if we are really concerned with economic opportunity, with economic mobility, with fighting poverty, with ending racialized poverty in this country, we need some other bold ideas to throw into the mix. So you've argued for a version of basic income called UBI plus that would combine the fundamental universal equal basic income along with also reparations for slavery. Can you tell us a bit more about how you see that working? Sure. And just as the context, I decided to take the two least popular, craziest ideas in American politics today that people seem are think are far-fetched. Reparations on the one hand for um, slavery, for Jim Crow, for decades of racial discrimination and exclusion, and basic income, universal basic income on the other. And just mash them up. Mix them up. <laughs> I, like, why not, right? Let's just go for it. And so the idea is it's based on history and a reading of history. So when we look at New Deal social programs, whether it's Social Security from which black Americans were explicitly excluded for the first decade of that program, if we look at other New Deal social programs, social protections like the minimum wage or the right to organize, black Americans were also excluded from those programs because of what we call the Southern Compromise. So this is the deal that President Roosevelt struck with racist Southern Democrats in order for the legislation to pass. And the exclusions in, that, in those, that body of legislation, they were technically occupational exclusions. So it excluded agricultural workers and domestic workers. But that was the cover for racial exclusions because those were the two occupations black Americans 
were disproportionately located in in southern in the southern economy. So for decades, um, we had exclusions, especially from Social Security. We fixed that one. We didn't fix the minimum wage. We didn't fix some of the others. Then you add on top of that the GI Bill or, um, or federally insured housing mortgages. Black Americans were also excluded from those. And a lot of this draws on um, the, the author Ta-Nehisi Coates' very famous now infamous article in The Atlantic on reparations where he details you don't have to go back to slavery to talk about reparations. You can just go to the 20th century and the things we did to improve the lives of working class and poor people, we actually excluded black people for decades from those programs. So the starting point for me was to say, well, let's look at history. And when we talk about universal social programs, it's often to the exclusion of racial um, minorities or black Americans in particular. And so how do we think about programs that benefit everyone, but then also repair the harm that we as a society and the federal government did to black Americans just in the 20th century. Again, I'm not going back to slavery, even though we could have that argument, but just <laughs> in the 20th century, right? Just in our parents' lifetime, these are programs that excluded black Americans, even though we considered them universal. So the idea of UBI Plus is to take into account that history of exclusion from programs that helped to build a middle class in this country in the middle part of the 20th century and say, okay, we're gonna offer basic income to everyone, but we're gonna take history into account. And the accumulative effects of that history of social exclusion from policy and repair the harm done for black Americans as we move forward. And so it's sort of a it's a both a backward-looking and a forward-looking proposal to say, look, we need to help all struggling Americans and provide a base standard of economic security. But recognizing the history of our own policy, black Americans in particular should get a little bit extra. So I'll admit my ignorance here. When you say that black Americans were excluded from the GI Bill and other programs, was that explicit exclusion or kind of like um, the, the earned income tax credit where it was not explicit, but everyone knew what was going on? It was a combination of both. Um, and it was, uh, you know, there, there are several histories now written about this. There's a great book by Ira Katz Nelson, who's a political scientist and historian at Columbia University. And the title of his book is provocative because it's called When Affirmative Action Was White. And the idea is that the GI Bill, federally backed mortgages um, in the, throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, there were explicit um, exclusions in in those social policies around race, um, often, as I mentioned earlier, framed as occupational exclusions in many cases, but it, sir, it was de facto discrimination and exclusion. And then there were, there were more informal ways. So um, mortgage lenders just wouldn't lend to black people. Um, many, many universities or the, just the GI, so the GI Bill selection process excluded black Americans because there was a lot of discretion held by government bureaucrats who may have held racially biased attitudes. So it's a combination of both exclusions in the actual law and policy, as well as the, the individual practices of, of, of people with power to determine who got to benefit and who didn't. So you did some work with the Movement for Black Lives around crafting their policy platform. And Ashley were able to, to work with them to include this UBI plus proposal. Can you tell us a bit about 
what that process and what that experience was like? Absolutely. So you might remember from 2011, there was this thing called Occupy Wall Street. And um, it was a, a short-lived movement. But one of the critiques of Occupy was that they had no demands. And so when the movement for Black Lives um, emerged, a group of organizers got together and said, well, we're not going to go the route of Occupy. If people want to know what our demands are, we're going to create a policy document with a list of substantive demands. And not just like a list but with the intellectual justification for those demands. And so there were about 70 movement leaders, organizers, activists got together over a two-year period and crafted what became the Movement for Black Lives um, policy document or policy demands. And so I got a chance to be part of that process and was able to write one of those demands around the UBI plus proposals. So the combination of universal basic income with reparations. And as I mentioned earlier, this was not controversial or news to these organizers and activists and movement leaders because the idea has been around for a long time within black politics with, with the Black Panthers, with Dr. King and many, many others. So um, my proposal wasn't controversial. There are lots of controversial things in that document. My proposal was the, one of the least controversial ideas in that document. And so it is part of the official movement for black lives that it demands. Got a very broad question, but one I think you've thought a lot about. How do you see life changing for black Americans if we had a UBI or a UBI plus? Well, wow. Um, it'd, be, it'd be really transformative. I'm, I'm, uh, at one point in this country, we decided we were going to end poverty. Um, and so you, some of you might remember in 1964, Lyndon Johnson launched the war on poverty. And when he gave his speech announcing the launch, he articulated very publicly, you can find the transcript, the goal was to end poverty in America, by that he meant absolute poverty, to end poverty in America by the bicentennial of the country, so by 1976. So he launches the war on poverty in 1964. The idea was, we're going to end poverty by 1976. So, you know, 12 years later, we'll be good. Obviously, that didn't come to pass. But the idea of basic income and universal basic income and UBI plus for black Americans, what it means to me is that we could actually, and we have the means, and if we had the will, we could do this, we could end absolute poverty in black communities, but across all communities in this country. And it's really, really important because as I said earlier, two out of three black kids born in this country is born into poverty. And we also know that if you're born into poverty, whether you're white or black, the chances of you escaping are getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. So economic and social mobility over the last 40 years in this country has become much more difficult for people if they're born poor working class. It's much harder to jump into the middle class if you're born poor. That comes really close to what others would call a caste system, right, where your accident of birth determines your life chances and life outcomes. And so something like a basic income and a universal basic income and a universal basic income plus, that would, with one stroke, we could level the playing field in terms of kids being born in poverty that would then have a fair shot and a fair chance to actually make it to the middle class and, and live out their full potential. You mentioned earlier some of the major racial issues around our criminal justice system. Can you say a bit more about how you could imagine universal basic income or UBI plus 
might play into that, both as far as entry and re-entry? Yeah, in two ways at least, and there are many, many more. But one is is you would eliminate the incentive for people to have to find work in the informal economy or the black market, right? If everyone had some basic security of cash income where they didn't have to go sell drugs or do whatever they have to do to just survive, that would actually prevent a whole group of people from being in some ways channeled into the criminal justice system, just trying to survive and make ends meet. So that's one direct way, right? Because we know the labor market is broken and it doesn't provide opportunities for work. When people find work, by the way, it's really crappy jobs. I was about to cuss, but I know this is a PG <laughs> podcast. Right? But we know we have an economy that is really creating low-wage jobs that are replacing what used to be middle-class jobs. So when people can find work, it's low-wage work. It's not enough. And they can't find work, right? Especially if they have a criminal record based especially on something like a nonviolent offense of selling drugs to make ends meet. So that's like one direction. There's a second that's actually more pernicious and this is what we've learned, speaking of the movement for black lives, where most of us are familiar with Ferguson and the protests that started in Ferguson after the shooting death of Mike Brown. Well, the Department of Justice wrote this really long report on the criminal justice system in Ferguson. And what it found is that the city of Ferguson uses punitive fines and fees of its population as a means to raise revenue. And they target poor and working class black people in that community. So they target people who are jaywalking. They target people with minor traffic violations. Maybe you have a broken taillight. You get pulled over, you get a fine. Well, if you're not working or you have a crappy job and you can't pay the fine, then you're late, then that adds to the fine. And then at some point, if you can't pay the fine, they actually jail you. And then if you can't pay the bond because you're too poor to pay the bond, like so it's just a compounding set of punitive measures that really targets poor and working class black people. That is the criminal justice system. But the pernicious part is that it's a way to raise revenue for the city, which is insane, right? When you think about it. So UBI would help to prevent both of those routes in terms of the criminal justice system. It would allow people not to have to go into the black market and do illicit work and then get caught up in that web of illegality, right? Just trying to make ends meet. It would, also re it would also allow people to not have to go on the debt for really arbitrary fines like traffic stops and violations because they would have some security and a basic income to, be to not have a broken taillight or to at least pay the ticket or at least pay the bond or at least pay the fine, right? So, there's, there, so in both of those instances, basic income would dramatically change the everyday lived experience of many poor and working class black people. And I might add, it's not just poor and working class black, it's all poor people that are, that are affected by this, this system of punitiveness for the purpose of municipal revenue. So somewhat along those same lines, those of us who spend a lot of time in the basic income space know that there isn't just one proposal for basic income, there's at least a handful. And there are some hypothetical versions that you have flagged as having some of the same issues around racial injustice. Could you say a little bit about those? Um, well, you know, there's some there's some naughty questions in our entire UBI conversation. So, um, for instance, would immigrants be eligible, or would those with a criminal? You know, I could imagine if we pass a national UBI tomorrow, 
that there would be some elements as part of that coalition who would say, oh, but if you have a criminal record, you're not eligible. Um, so we would have to, like, that's a fight, you know, that we have to be strong on from a racial justice perspective, that any, especially what, what in my world we call returning citizens, so people that have done their time, have, have for whatever reason that they're incarcerated, they get out, they return home to their communities, everybody should be eligible. We have a very punitive social safety net right now. So for instance, if you have a criminal record, even if you've served your time, you're not eligible for public housing. Well, UBI, and this goes to your earlier question, UBI would help solve for that, right? Because if you have cash, then you can rent from anywhere, right? In the open market, as opposed to being excluded. So those are two of the, I think, the really challenging issues among many others. So the immigration question is who's eligible, and then also making sure those with a criminal background aren't excluded from being able to access or being eligible for UBI. Those are two that come to mind for me. I, th I'm, I know there are lots of others. So there's been a lot of developments in the basic income space over the last one and a half, two years now. What developments, what recent developments would you say excite you the most? Oh, I think there's two things. I think one is the global conversation. Um, you know, there was a referendum um, in Switzerland last year around a UBI. And there's just a, especially among um, Western democracies, there's been just a huge uptick in this conversation through the work of you guys and many others who have been at this for many, many, many years of making the case that this is a way to help solve poverty and to, and to provide economic security. So the global conversation has finally landed, I think, in a bigger, bigger way in the US. So that's really exciting. And then second, I think there's just an appetite by organizers on the ground who want to experiment. They, they're looking for a big, bold idea and they want to try something. And so to give you an example, if you go back four years, there were some organizers who thought, huh, the federal minimum wage is $7.25. That's not enough for people to get by. Let's like launch some bold campaign, even if we don't win. And something called the Fight for 15 was born. And I'll never forget, because when that campaign launched, arguing for a $15 an hour minimum wage, so twice the national minimum wage, everyone laughed those organizers out of the room. Oh, it's impossible. That's too out there. It's too unrealistic. And here we are, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, all these cities have said, actually, we're going to do it. And it's doable. And here we're going to get economists to study the effects. And we know that it actually will benefit not only those, those workers who are trying to make ends meet, we know it'll actually benefit our local businesses. So similar to that campaign, there is an appetite right now in this country for organizers who want to launch some UBI campaigns, some basic income campaigns in places where they think they can win and leapfrog the conversation and the effort in this country. So lastly, I just want to know if you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share. We need the biggest, boldest ideas. I'm actually angry and infuriated with this country as it is in terms of the gross inequality of the almost 2 million people that live on less than $2 a day, which you wouldn't think happens in this country. You would, we think of it as somewhere right around somewhere else in the world that that's the case. So just with when I look around and see how people are struggling and what they're fighting for, we, we need this now. But also, I, I don't want to dismiss 
the future-oriented arguments because, um, and this tell, goes back to the very beginning of the conversation, I'll tell you this quick little story. Um, Bayard Rustin, who's one of the heroes of the civil rights movement, he was Dr. King's lieutenant. Um, he was never publicly prominent because at the time he was a gay black man in the closet because there was no gay liberation movement that had been birthed yet. And so he was seen as the behind the scenes guy. Bayard Rustin organized the March on Washington. He was the chief organizer in 1963. That march was in August of 1963. And in October of 1963, Bayard wrote an essay reflecting on the importance of that march on Washington. By the way, it was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And one of the things he wrote in this reflection just a couple months after was about how the civil rights movement had to solve the problem of jobs and automation because he was obsessed with the, the, what automation was going to do to black Americans and to all Americans. And this is 1963, right? And what he saw was not necessarily automation, but he did see deindustrialization, which just ravaged urban black communities from Cleveland to Gary, Indiana, to Youngstown, Ohio, to my hometown of Chicago. Automation and deindustrialization happened. And so, and he warned us then that this was going to happen. And so I think we have to be thinking about the future in addition to the current circumstances of too many Americans. What will happen or what might happen if automation, artificial intelligence, robots, technology fundamentally disrupts our economy? I'm convinced that it will fundamentally disrupt and hurt black Americans first. And we're going to feel that pain first. And so we have to be thinking future oriented as well as in the present moment. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Dorian. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you, Jim and Owen. We've been chatting with Dorian Warren, president of the Center for Community Change Action, fellow at the Roseville Institute and co-chair of the Economic Security Project. Thank you for listening to the Basic Income Podcast. Special thanks to our producer, Eric Davidson. To hear more conversations like these, please subscribe on iTunes or the podcast service of your choice and leave a rating or review while you're there. It'll help other people find the podcast and grow the movement. See you next week. 